Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to this day in history class. It is July 1st, and Ignaz Semmelweis was born on this day in Buda, Hungary, which is part of Budapest now. He was known as everything from the savior of mothers to the father of infection control. So here are the highlights of his life and work. First up, he was an obstetrician, but obstetrics was a brand new medical field. Until the late 18th and early 19th centuries in Europe, midwives were usually the people who delivered babies. It was not common at all for a doctor to be involved. The doctors were almost universally men, and it was so rare for a doctor to be involved that when obstetricians arrived on the scene and started delivering babies, in some places they were called man midwives. Semmelweis was also a teacher. He worked at Vienna Allgemeine Krankenhaus, or the General Hospital, which was like a teaching hospital today. So he was teaching medical students, he was helping them with difficult deliveries, he was also keeping records, keeping up with all the clerical files for the school and the the patients. And that put him in a really unique position to realize the magnitude of a big problem that was facing the general hospital. And that was that there were two clinics, one staffed by midwives and midwifery students, and the other staffed by doctors and medical students. And the midwifery clinic had about a third of the maternal deaths of the doctor's clinic. Three times more people dying in the doctor's clinic of something called childbed fever, also called puerperal fever, as in the midwife's clinic. This was not acceptable, and it was not acceptable to the patients either. People who showed up at the hospital and learned that it was the doctor's day to take new patients would literally have babies out on the street to avoid going into the hospital and risking their lives with the doctors. So Ignaz Semmelweis thought this was completely mortifying and unacceptable, and he started trying to figure out what was causing this problem. He compared everything that he could think of between the doctor's clinic and the midwife's clinic. He compared what the patients were eating. He compared the religions of the people that were working in both clinics. He compared how overcrowded they were. And it turned out, unsurprisingly, the midwife's clinic was the more crowded clinic. People clearly wanted to go there much more than they wanted to go to the doctor's clinic. He couldn't figure out what the problem was until a friend of his nicked his finger during an autopsy and then later died of something that seemed a whole lot like childbed fever. So that gave Ignaz Semmelweis an idea that maybe it was the hands of the medical students that were the problem. They were conducting autopsies and then they were delivering babies and they weren't washing their hands in between because the germ theory of disease didn't really exist. Neither did surgical gloves. They didn't come along until much later. And he came up with a revolutionary idea for how to fix this problem, and that was to have the medical students wash their hands between conducting an autopsy and delivering a baby. So he instituted this practice. He had all of the medical students wash their hands anytime they had done an autopsy before they actually went into the ward and started delivering babies. And the rate of maternal death plummeted. Three months or so after he started this process, in August of 1847, which was just a couple of months after he put this process into place, there were zero maternal deaths from childbed fever in the doctor's clinic. And that was the first time that had happened since the medical students started conducting autopsies. It was a really big deal. But when he started trying to encourage all of his colleagues to start this hand washing, they did not respond well. They didn't 
welcome him with open arms, saying, thank you so much. You have taught us how we can stop literally killing our patients. Instead, they made fun of him. They completely dismissed his ideas. His boss said that it was not hand-washing at all. It was the brand-new ventilation system, which was drawing terrible miasmas out of the hospital. That was really why patients had stopped dying. None of those people were correct. Ignat Semmelweis was correct. He got increasingly upset about the fact that his colleagues were not taking his advice and were, in fact, being unkind and cruel to him about it. He eventually left Vienna in the middle of the night, didn't tell anybody where he was going, and he got other jobs elsewhere and similarly reduced the maternal death rate at the places where he worked by having people wash their hands. So he had always been kind of a stubborn person, maybe not very easy to get along with, and his behavior started to become increasingly erratic. He finally wrote a whole book on his experiences and his theories in 1861, and parts of it were great, but parts of it were just these rambling diatribes against the people that had criticized him and had been teaching their students to ignore his theories. His wife became convinced that there was something truly wrong, and so he was institutionalized in 1865, and he died in that institution on August 13th of that year at the age of 47. His cause of death was probably septicemia, but his former employer back in Vienna did an autopsy and found that he had evidence of severe injuries. It seems as though he was probably mistreated in that uh, asylum where he ultimately died. So when Ignaz Semmelweis died, people like Louis Pasteur and Joseph Lister and Robert Koch were all doing the work that would become the germ theory of disease. And by about the 1880s, the exact same infection control procedures that he had put into effect decades earlier were common practice in the field of obstetrics. A Hungarian doctor published a paper about Semmelweis in 1887. At that point, that he was sort of bringing him out of obscurity. Everybody had forgotten about him, and it's only been since that time that people have started to realize what a groundbreaker he was. You can learn more about Ignaz Semmelweis and the other doctors who were making similar strides at about the same time in the March 21st, 2018 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called Ignaz Semmelweis and the War on Handwashing. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, we have a story of a rebellion and a trial, which has a cameo by John Quincy Adams. Hello, welcome to This Day in History class, where we flip through the book of history and bring you a new page every day. The day was July 1st, 1960. The new constitution of Ghana went into effect, transforming the country from one with a parliamentary system to one with a republican form of government. The Republic of Ghana was formally proclaimed, and Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah was inaugurated as president. Before independence, Ghana was known as the Gold Coast, a British colony. The British exploited and exported the resources in the Gold Coast, including gold, diamonds, ivory, cocoa, timber, and manganese. As this economy developed, it supported the construction of harbors, railways, roads, schools, and hospitals. European interference in the economics and politics of the region had broken down the traditional social order of the groups there. But by the end of World War II, people had begun protesting for more autonomy from the British. 
sentiments of nationalism had reached a peak and movements developed in opposition to colonial administration with the goal of independence. A moderate party called the United Gold Coast Convention, or UGCC, formed in 1947 to pursue constitutional reform and eventual self-government. Kwame Nkrumah was the general secretary of the party, but in 1949, he split with the UGCC and formed the Revolutionary Convention People's Party, or CPP. Nkrumah and the CPP called for self-government now, and it gained widespread popular support. In 1950, the CPP began a campaign of so-called positive action, encouraging nonviolent resistance and strikes against colonial authorities. Nkrumah was soon arrested and imprisoned for a sedition, but the CPP won a majority of the seats in the first elections for the Legislative Assembly, and Nkrumah was released from prison to become the leader of government business. In 1952, Nkrumah became the first prime minister of the Gold Coast. In 1956, the British Togoland Trust Territory integrated with the Gold Coast. And on March 6, 1957, after centuries of being a center for the export of enslaved people and then being subject to European control, the Gold Coast gained its independence from Britain and became an independent, self-governing member of the Commonwealth of Nations. The country was renamed Ghana. It was the first Black sub-Saharan country in colonial Africa to achieve independence. Nkrumah was a Marxist and Pan-Africanist, and he viewed the independence of Ghana as an important step for the entire continent of Africa. Though his rule was increasingly regarded as authoritarian, he improved infrastructure and social conditions in Ghana. The working class was thriving, but the country was still an independent constitutional monarchy, with Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state. In April of 1960, a plebiscite, or constitutional referendum, took place on the issue of Ghana becoming a republic. About 88% of the voters supported the change. Nkrumah was elected president of the republic, with 89% of the vote. He was inaugurated on July 1, 1960, when the new constitution of Ghana went into effect. Ghana became a republic in the Commonwealth of Nations. Though Nkrumah had support initially, people began to resent him and the administration, which was suffering under debt and corruption. There were several assassination attempts on the president's life. Four years after Ghana became a republic and Nkrumah was elected president, a constitutional amendment made Ghana a one-party state, and Nkrumah declared himself life president of the country and the party. But as Nkrumah tried to advance his vision of a united Africa and empowered activists, the economy and living standards in Ghana suffered, and opposition to the regime grew. In February of 1966, while the president was visiting China, Nkrumah's government was overthrown by a coup of the Ghana Armed Forces. The National Liberation Council took over the government and suspended the constitution. Nkrumah found refuge in Guinea. Until 1981, when Jerry Rawlings came to power, Ghana's government saw many coups and alternating military and civilian regimes. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions or comments to tell us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook 
at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.